We're grateful for so many children here today. We're glad for God, the way he works in our lives and our families. Okay, some big decisions being made right now. Do we stay with mommy or do we go? We had such a great day yesterday. As many of you know, that was a, our fishing trip at Larry Honey's place. And let me tell you, there's a lot of bass that rode up, woke up this morning with a mouth that was hurting big time. <laughs> we did really well. We just were knocking them dead, figuratively speaking. We put them back in. But it was a great time for the guys to be together. And uh, some, you know, I don't get it. Some people, John Wilson must be living well. That's all I can say. He had not been fishing in years. Goes out in the boat. We've only been out about five minutes. He goes over and gets a big bass. In like 10 minutes, he gets another big one. And then I'm told he got several more. And the rest of us are like, tell him to stop anytime soon here. <laughs> but it was a great time. And it was good to be together. And God has been so good to us as a congregation how faithful he's been, and how we've seen his love and his care in so many ways. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, a thankful people for what you've done for us, what you're doing, what you're yet going to do in our lives and in this world. We thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. We thank you that we can come to the Bible and not have to figure out is this true or is it false, but to know that it is true. Because you, Lord Jesus, through the inspiration of the scriptures, has given us the opportunity to know your will, your way, that we might live a life that's honoring to you, that is an impact on the lives of others. And so, Father, we would ask that you would be with us. Give us ears to hear, a heart that's open, and that we would be challenged by hearing the good scriptures that you've given us today. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As if you've been here before, you know we've been doing a series in 1 Corinthians. And one of the reasons I chose 1 Corinthians because it has so many things that are so similar to what we're dealing with today. 2,000 years later, a lot of the same issues are going through with the church. And it's been very, very difficult in sometimes. But what we want today is continue in this series that we began in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is such a wonderful book. And to just do a little review from where we were at last week. Last week we were in 1 Corinthians. We want to get there a little bit of review. Well, there's a couple issues that were going on. It seemed to be that the Christians over there had this idea of some spiritual, that they were so really spiritual. And, and what happens is Paul in his letter writes and says, you know, you really think you're spiritual? You're not. He said there's a lot of spiritual immaturity in the church. And a lot of you think that you're really something and you are really sharp. But he's saying, you know what? You're like babies. And I'm not saying that he says in a good sense. Like you ought to be grown up, believers. And you're not. Paul had spent a year and a half with this, fam with this family, with this church family, teaching them the scriptures. And yet they continued to be like children at times. And so we thought there was this whole problem with spiritual immaturity. There was another thing, too. It said they had to recognize the role of God's servants. Remember before we talked about this, that some of them were dividing up, well, I'm with Apollos. He is the greatest speaker you ever saw. It's like, you know, I'm with Swindoll, and this person was this one. It's kind of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're thinking, well, you know, I think Apollos is great. Oh, nothing like the Apostle Paul. Well, what about so-and-so? And he's going, wait a minute, you guys don't get it. You're taking people, men, and putting them up way up there 
realizing here's what God thinks about them. Not like God thinks bad anything bad about them, but you need to say what is really their role for Paul, for Apollos, for those Cephas. Okay, what does a God think of them, and how does He expect them to be able to live? And He makes that pretty clear. He tells us the role of God's servants. He says only God who can bring the harvest. Remember, He talked about the fact that He said, you know, one person planted and the other person watered, but ultimately. It's going to be God's thing. It's going to have to be a God thing for it to happen. It's going to happen with this church. Paul's telling them at the same time. And he goes on to say, listen, this is an amazing phrase that we ended with last week. He had this phrase where he talked about, he said, do you realize that we are God's sanctuary and God's spirit dwells in us? That is an amazing verse for a Jewish person to say. For them, the temple was the center where God met man, where man met God. And that temple that they'd worked for for so many generations was one of the great places that they'd ever been built. And yet Jesus had told them, this place is going down. It's going to be destroyed. And he said, you know what? When that, tent, when that place is destroyed, when that beautiful temple is gone, you need to recognize God is still going to be with his people, not in a place but in the heart of the people who love Jesus Christ, who know him, the Savior and Lord. And to think of that, that God says to us, we, you, if you're a Christian, you are God's sanctuary and God's spirit dwells in us. That's an incredible thing. That's a very big movement for a Jewish person who was trained so well by Gamaliel to say, you know what? It's not about a place. It's about the person, the person of the second, third person of the Trinity. And that is why we worship. So that's what we had background last week, which gives us now our passage where we're going to. And so we're picking this up in verses, chapter 4, verses 1. And if he has to deal with this issue, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with people like Apollos? You keep picking this person's best, this person's better. And what he's saying here is, okay, let's straighten this out real quick. He said, a person should consider us, the Apostle Paul speaking about himself, you should consider us in this way. We are servants of Christ and managers of God's ministry. Two words that are very close, they overlap. One is the one we know, it's servants, okay? The other one is the word managers, it's very similar. Uh, Oikonomos is the word, it has this idea of a person who's entrusted, often it was maybe a slave. The Romans often would have slaves working for them who actually you know, wrote better than they did and were better at it. And so what they would do is they would work for them. So these two terms kind of overlap. He's saying, we are not superstars. We're not rock stars. We're servants and we're managers. There's nothing wrong with that. But his point is, you know, this is not like it's a high position. For example, we know in this passage where it talks about it, where it says here, he said, the, uh, the, we are servants of Christ and managers. And he said, of God's ministry. In this regard, it's expected of managers that each should be found faithful. He doesn't say that they have to be unbelievably smart or anything like that. He's saying, for the, what we have for you, what you ought to be recognizing, is that God asks his people to be faithful with what he's given them. Just like he's given different people different spiritual gifts, he does that with people in terms of their work as well. So he's saying, stop putting Apollos on this big ledge. Stop taking all these people up here and thinking how wonderful they are. That's great that God gave them to us. But you need to recognize being a servant in that time was not a particularly you know, great thing. In fact, the word servant, the way it's used, the earliest use they know in Greek language is was waiting on tables. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with waiting on tables. There's probably many of us. I know Dara had to wait on tables for a while. So it's not like a bad thing. But in their culture, it was considered to be a very low level. Maybe it is still today, Dara. I don't know. But it's a very low level kind of deal. And he's saying, why are you making superstars of these guys if all they are is like table waiters? Now, he's not putting down Apollos, and he's not putting down the other apostles. But he's saying, do you understand this? It's not about getting your favorite person. And he says, what, 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 what I want to see is faithfulness to what God has called you to do and what he's called you to be. And so as we go into this next passage, he says this. Paul's kind of, kind of a little deviation here, but he says, you know, it's of little of importance that I should be evaluated by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself. Now, notice what he's saying. I don't care who thinks Swindoll is the best, or I don't think that it's Jack. Da, da, da. His point is, do you understand? That's not the point. The point is faithfulness to God in the, in the areas that he asks us to serve him. And he said, I, I'm not going to have you evaluating. Well, Apollos is a little bit smarter, and he certainly has better Greek than da-da-da-da. He's saying, don't you get it? He says, in fact, he said, I don't even evaluate myself. Because he realizes the ultimate, <coughs> excuse me, the ultimate evaluation is coming when he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. And until then, well, we have to hold that in abeyance. He says, it goes in verse 4. He said, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. This is an interesting verse, by the way. Paul realized that conscience is an important part of the Christian life. Remember, it talks about in First and Second Thessalonians that people who have, who's their, their kind of like their, um, their conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. But he's saying, even those that are not that way, he said, you know, it could be. He said, I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. In other words, maybe there are things in my life that are displeasing to God that I just don't pick them up yet, or I don't know where they're at. So he said, I I'm going to have to leave this with the Lord, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself. But I'm not justified by this. The one who evaluates me is the Lord. And that's his big point. One day, all of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful for that passage last week where he said, you know, some are going to have gold and silver and this, and others are going to have wood, st straw. But it said, but you will be yet saved. And so we're grateful for that. But notice what he says as we go on. Leon Morris put it this way. He said, as of course, it's very difficult to make an assessment of one's own achievement. In other words, we're not too good at trying to really realize what we are and what we've done. He said, uh, he said uh, and Paul's point is that in this case, it really doesn't matter. What matters is what God sees in the hearts of men and women. Are they being faithful in the task that God has called them to live? So look at this passage, verse 5. And so Paul writes this, therefore, don't judge anything prematurely. He's going to talk, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but saying, don't be premature about the decision you make about people. Before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness, all the things you thought no person would ever know about, that's going to come to light. It's going to reveal the intentions of the heart. There's many of us that can look and smile, but our heart is not where it should be. I mean, other than this, our chest, but I mean the intention. If we can look good, and yet in the ends outside, we're like, that guy's an idiot. He said to bring to light what is hidden in darkness, to reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then, and I love this phrase, praise will come to each one from God. 
in spite of our foolishness, in spite of our stupidity, in spite of the ways that we get ourselves in trouble, he said, there will yet be praise for you when that day comes, when you stand before the Lord, and praise will come to each one from God. Verse 6, now brothers, he said, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from what is the saying, quote, nothing beyond what is written. Now, this is an oddity in the Bible. It's still part of God's inspired work, but it is a little bit strange. It said, he said, he said, so that you may learn from the saying, saying nothing beyond what is written. And the strange thing is, there is no passage like that in the Old Testament. And so it probably must be just he's speaking in the broader sense of what we know of the Old Testament thing. But there's not a particular passage that says it, but he still makes his point. He said, you can learn from the saying, nothing beyond what is written. Don't go beyond but what God has given us in the scriptures. He said, the purpose is that none of you will be inflated. And he uses this word fusio, this idea. Think of the idea of a balloon, a balloon that keeps up going bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's saying, that's what's happened to you guys. Your egos are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But he said, the purpose is that none of you should be inflated with pride in favor of one person over another. Again, going to saying, I'm of this person, I'm of that. He said, that's not what it's about. And so he says in verse 7, for who makes you superior? He's really getting right into the core of who we are. For who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And in fact, if you didn't receive it, why do you boast if you haven't received it? We're going to come back to this in just a moment. And Paul, what he does right now, he takes a kind of a, he's going this way. He goes, Rrr. he's kind of moving this way. His thought is going this way. And then he's going, think, I, I want to get to deal with something else here. And maybe you don't like this phrase. Um, maybe it's not a good phrase. But people often describe where Paul goes here, it's sort of like holy sarcasm. Now, some would say those two words shouldn't go together, but they seem to work very well in 1 Corinthians. Because what Paul's going to do, he's not being mean, but he's being direct. And what he's basically going to do is start saying, you know, all the things that you think are good, because think of what my life is like. So look what he does here in this passage. Paul is now looking at these people. They're so proud. They're so puffed up. They've got everything going for them. They've got their favorite teacher that they want to hang around with. And Paul starts getting sarcastic. And he says, already you are full. You guys have got everything going for them. He said, already you're rich, right? You've just begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish that you did reign, that we could also reign with you. The sarcasm is dripping if you see it coming. Oh, you're just like a king. Everything's wonderful. You're great. And he's going, sure, sure, really, really. He said, and he goes on, for I thank God has, excuse me, for I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in the last place. We're like men condemned to die. Paul's saying, you've got a wealthy church. You've got so many things good for you. You've got so many great leaders and teachers, and yet the church is a wreck. And he's telling them, do you understand what's going on here? He said, here's how you're living. Let me tell you how we're living. He said, I think that God has displayed us as the apostles in the last place like men condemned to die. He's probably looking back at this idea of when they had a big military thing or a special thing where they would come down the street and they'd have all the prisoners tied together and they'd be bringing them through to see the men that were going to be working maybe in the mines or many who are just going to be killed or they're going to go to a slave place. 
And he's saying, that's what we are. You're doing great. You're wonderful. You've got your act together. You know what our life is like? And he's not whining, by the way. He's comparing. For I thank God has displayed us, the apostles, in the last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. This is what our life is like. What's yours like? We continue, get to, we continue to be persecuted. You tell us how wonderful you are, how great your church is. You have the smartest pastor. Then why do you have all the problems that you have in this church where I spent a year and a half working with you? Notice what he says. This is, by the way, this is a quote from David Pryor. He said, at the heart of the boasting at Corinth, was the conviction that they were a very successful, lively, mature, and effective church. The Christians were satisfied with their spirituality, their leadership, and the general quality of their life together. Paul, what's your problem? We're doing great. Did you know that giving's up 25%, Paul? We had six baptisms this week. Did you know that? Everything is honky-dory. And Paul's going, I don't believe any of it. The fact that you are dividing up by this person, that person, this leader, that teacher, it's telling you there's something deeply wrong in this congregation. And so we come to this passage. He says in verse 9, For I thank God, I thank God excuse me, for I think God has displayed us, the apostles, the apostles, in last place. We're like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the word to angels and men. And then he goes on to say, We are fools for Christ. Now, again, I know, you know people take verses and words and they put it. Remember there was one guy that he would go around walking like in a, in a clown suit telling, I'm a fool for Christ. I'm a fool for Christ. And so you're not a fool for Christ. You're just a fool. You know, that's not the point. The point is we're like fools for Christ. He said, but you are so wise in Christ. We're weak. Oh, but you're so strong. You are distinguished, but we're dishonored. And then he goes and he gives it, really, you get a picture of what his life was like. Up to the present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. He means right up to now. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the issues of food. He said, we're poorly clothed. Probably a tent maker, from what we can tell. He worked with cloth, but he himself didn't have very good clothes. We were roughly treated. We're homeless. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul as a homeless person in the streets of Dallas? Would you reach out to him and ask how he's doing? Does he need something? See, the Corinthians are doing great. Nice clothes. Things are going well. Baptisms are up. Giving is up. And he's saying, you know what we're like? <laughs> we're literally homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. He says, when we're slandered, we entreat. We are, even now, like the world's garbage, like the filth of all things. You can't get any lower than this. We're the scum on the bottom of the garbage truck. And yet you're so proud of how good you are and how great the church is. 
you need to get a whole new view of what God wants from you and for you. Notice what he says here. He tries to get a little bit kinder, I guess you put it here. He says this, I'm not writing this to shame you. It kind of sounds like he is, but he's not trying to do that. He said, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. In other words, who's the person who led you to Christ in this church? Uh, you, Paul. And how about you? Uh, you, Paul. And how about you? Yeah, I know where you're going this. Yeah, we're all, we all came to faith to you, right? Right. Okay, I understand that now. We get that. See, I'm not trying to shame you, but I want to warn you as my dear children. Because you're my children in the faith, I, haven't, I, have, to, I have to be honest with you. I could tell you all the wonderful things about how great you are if that's what you want to hear, but it's worthless. And he tells you, I, I wonder. I wanted to warn you because I love you. And so he says this, for you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. Now I have fathered you in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, be imitators of me. That is a great passage. Think of all the teachers that have come through in Corinth, all the important people, all the good teachers, all the good apostles. He said, okay, I get that, he said, but you know what? Who's the one that led you to Christ? Um, Paul, right. How about the guy next door? It was Paul. We get the point, right? Right, he is the one that led you to Christ. And yet, we live like dirt on the ground. And he said, I'm willing to do that for the gospel. But don't give me this stuff about how wonderful the church is just because giving is up and because you like your pastor. The question is, is God pleased with you in terms of what God is asking from you? He says, therefore, I urge you to be imitators to me. Think about that. I don't know as a person I'd want to say this. Be an imitator of me. And I would say, at least in some things, but maybe not everything. Paul felt like that he wasn't perfect, but he realized he was living the life that seemed that God wanted him to do. He says, so I urge you to be imitators for me. He said, this is why I've sent to you Timothy. Paul could not go at the time, but he thought, I know someone who could. He may be young, but boy, is he sharp. And he met Timothy, and Timothy came with him in a lot of those tre uh, treks on the second um, journey. And he said, I'm going to send him to you. In other words, you need some help. I personally can't go, but I'm sending Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child and Lord. He'll remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. By the way, I wish, or we wish, that we knew how many churches were there at that time. There in Corinth, was there two churches, 10 churches, 100 churches? I doubt it, not that many. But it'd be interesting to know how many there were. But he's saying, in all my churches, I teach the same thing. It's about Christ, it's not about you. It's about the gospel, not what you think about all these different leaders. And he says, now some are inflated with pride, as though I'm not coming to you. He told them before he was going to come, but he couldn't come right now. But I'm going to come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I'll know the talk, excuse me, and I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. I'll have to deal with you if I have to. You're all puffed up about yourself, and if I have to prick that balloon, I'll do it. Because, he says, for the kingdom of God is not in talk, but in power. And he wants to use that if he has to. And then he says, what do you want? Should I come with you with a rod, 
or in love and a spirit of gentleness. He's doing tough love here, babies. What's going on? Going on. Saying, get this? I'm going to have to do something here. When I come, what do you want? Do you want me to come with the stick? Or do you want me to come with saying, well done. You've dealt with the issues that are here. You're growing in your grace. There's humility among you. He's saying, what do you think it's going to be? And so he asked that question. What do you think? I'm coming. You're going to be ready? Because God's got a lot of work to do in this church. I may be the one that birthed it, but I'm coming back to a church that is deeply, deeply flawed. This passage is significant two different ways. Real briefly, if we'll stick with me. It has an interesting thing about how do we judge others. If you think about it, many of us throughout the day multiple times make judgments about people, about how they look, what they do, what schools they go to. Sometimes we're not even conscious that we're doing that. But the Apostle Paul is saying, you need to be really careful about this. I mean, suppose you had met the Apostle Paul, before his name was Paul, when he was Saul, when he was out trying to kill Christians, or at least imprison Christians. You know, if you saw them, you'd go, oh, that's that terrible guy. We hate him, da-da-da-da. You know what? Hang on 10 years and see what this man is like when he meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. What if you were the person who met C.S. Lewis when he was an atheist, or at least an agnostic, and people going, oh, that guy, he's never going to come to faith, and then guess what? He goes to the zoo, and somehow along that track, he finds out that there's Jesus, Jesus, and his life has changed forever. We keep making judgments about people of which we often know very little about. We don't know the heart of others. When we get to heaven, we're going to meet people and go, oh my goodness, I wrote him off as an idiot. And yet this is a person the Lord showed me was one of the most remarkable men you'll ever meet. And he's saying, be very careful with the way you do in judgment. We unconsciously do this regularly with people around us. Be careful how you judge. The Lord speaks a lot about that. The second thing I want to close with real quick is this verse. Let me me go back to what Paul says, I mean, what this writer said. This is John R. W. Stott. He said, Paul had a grim past as a vicious opponent of Jesus Christ, as he himself readily admits, but... Such is the experience of the grace of God in forgiving him. He's making that same kind of point. You never would have thought that Paul that was putting Christians in jail is the same one who's changing the world by the gospel. Be careful what you say. Be careful the way you deal with people. So notice this, if you would. One verse I want you to focus on. This verse has been one of my favorite verses for a long time. I have a lot of favorites, but this is one of the favorites, okay? It is this one right here. For who makes you superior? Notice this next words. What do you have that you didn't receive? These people were all puffed up about how smart they were, how great their pastor and teachers were, all the wonderful things that they had, how their church was so great. And he's saying, you know what? You're all puffed up and you shouldn't be. So he asked them the question all you smart, intelligent people here in the church of Corinth. He said, what do you have that you didn't receive? Did God, I mean, did you get that good brain by yourself? Well, no, my mom, you know, and dad. Okay, well, 
And did they get it from themselves? Well, no. I mean, that generation. Yeah, duh, duh, duh. He keeps asking the question. You know, well, what do you have that you didn't receive? Um, well, come to think of it, it's all of mercy. It's all of grace. Because, well, I, I'm the one that designed such and such beautiful car. That's good. So who gave you that ability? Well, I did. Really? Well, the people I worked with and I did that. Oh, really? And also that, well, you keep coming back to the fact of saying all that we have that's significant, that's enduring, is all that we have in the mercy of Jesus Christ. This is a huge issue. Particularly in the Middle Ages, there was often issues where saying, saying, talking about, well, you know, you have to do a certain number of merits to be accepted by God. And you have to say, maybe if you do this and this and this, maybe you can make it, maybe not. The Reformation was a thing of saying, it's not about you, it's about Christ. That you could never do enough to merit God's free salvation. And he's saying, what do you have that you didn't receive? The idea of a Christian being arrogant is an oxymoron. A Christian, by definition, ought to be a person who realizes that all that I am, all that I've received, is all of mercy and not of me. God humbles us so he can use us to have an impact on the life of this world. Paul was all about that. But what about us? Father, I thank you for this passage that you brought to us today. I thank you, Lord, that you keep bringing us back to the fact that it's all of mercy, not of merit. That there's nothing we could do to earn what you are freely willing to give us. And that everything that we have that's so precious to us ultimately comes back to you and your good grace. Lord, help us as a congregation a church very different 2,000 years ago and yet deal with same issues. So help us, Lord, to be people that are so close to you, who live a life of humility before you that will make an impact forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.